I just have to note that when we decided to, uh, to do this sermon series on Luke chapter 15, it didn't even dawn on me that we were doing this prodigal son parable on Father's Day. And uh, to be honest with you, if I had known that today was Father's Day, I probably would have tried to avoid doing this parable because I didn't want to make it as if we're doing sort of a, a Father's Day service. Uh, because uh, you may know uh, that, uh, at least for me, and I think it's true for Brad as well, that we often get maybe a little bit skittish about doing, making too much of non-church holidays in worship. And it's not that we think those things are, are bad. You know, it's great to celebrate mothers and, and fathers. Uh, it's great to celebrate Veterans Day and Memorial Day and, and all of these other holidays. But what we gather around it is not the same calendar that the world gathers around. And what we gather to celebrate here is namely Jesus. And what he's done for us and what he offers us. And so while all of those other things are good, we're here for, for very different purposes. And, and there's a very different message that shapes who we are as God's people. And so as we gather today, we recognize that on Father's Day, that not, often, or not always do people necessarily have happy thoughts when they think of fathers. So for some of us, Maybe the thought of your dad is, is a very pleasant thought, but maybe for you, it's a painful thought. Maybe there's a lot of hurt, loss, anger, sadness attached to your father. And so as we gather together as God's people, what we hope to be drawn into is not simply thoughts of, of pleasant or, or maybe unpleasant memories of earthly fathers, but the love of our heavenly father. The father who works tirelessly to bring his children home. And that's what we're going to gather around as we reflect on the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 15. We pick it up with this parable, the parable of the prodigal son in verse 11. Jesus begins this story like this. It says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So you may know that this request of the son made here is a rather audacious and disrespectful request. Because in that day, if a man had two sons, his property would in fact one day be divided between his son, with the older son getting this double share of the inheritance. But when would that day have come? It would have come at the father's death. Right? Not before. After. That's when the appropriate time would come for the son to receive his inheritance. So the subtext here in the way this story begins is the son comes to his father and he says, Dad, you are getting in the way of me getting the thing that I want, which is your stuff. Sons would never say this, right? <laughs> But even more deeply than that, what the son is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you would get on with this. So let's just cut all the formalities. Let's skip over the normal due process of things. And let's just get really to what I really want, and that is your stuff. So let's just do it now, because I would rather have your things 
than have you. I think Jesus gives us here a rather pointed picture of what sin really is. It is that sin is not just doing a couple of wrong things or or stepping out of bounds. At the heart of sin, both the, the big things and the little things, at the heart of sin is this statement, God, I wish you were dead. Because your presence, obedience to you, doing what you want me to do, gets in the way of the thing that I really want, which is my happiness. So I wish you would just die so I could do what I want. When we sin, when we disobey God, what we are ultimately saying is, God, I wish you were dead. As Jesus continues, we see in this story where that action gets this young man. He continues in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So the son takes his portion of the inheritance... And he begins to sort of liquidate it. Because we know that it wouldn't have been as simple as the father just writing a check to drain a third of his bank account or or selling off a few stock shares. But he would have actually had to sell off a bunch of property. And so the son begins to sell off the family estate. And once he's done this, he gathers up everything he earns and he goes off to this far country To live amidst the Gentiles. And there we're told he squanders, he wastes, he spends all of the family inheritance in reckless, foolish living. And it just so happens that as he's down on his luck, a famine arises and he finds himself doing what is unthinkable for a young Jewish man. Feeding dirty, filthy, unclean pigs, longing to eat what they eat. And it's there as as he's completely helpless and lost that the young man sort of has this epiphany. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants, they have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I'll go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the son sees his situation and he has this idea. He thinks back and he says, you know what? My father's a kind, generous man. He didn't just take care of his family. He took care of his employees, his workers. I think of all those, fa- those people who worked for my father. And they had more than enough to eat. They were paid handsomely for their labor. Here's what I'll do. I will return to my father and I'll say, Dad, I know I can't be your son anymore. Give me a job. Now what most commenters agree 
is that th- at this point in the story, this speech that the son is reciting is not repentance. At this point in the story, the son is not turned in guilt or burdened by what he's done. No, what he wants to do here is not receive grace. He wants to receive an opportunity to work off the debt. At this point in the story, the son still thinks the whole problem with what he did is that he lost the money. And so he's going to go back to his father and say, Dad, give me a job. I'm going to work. I'm going to toil. I'll get the money back. I'll pay you. Just give me a chance. He doesn't want grace. He wants an opportunity to work his way back. Because you see, the son knows what's coming when he returns. There's a man by the name of of Kenneth Bailey who, who writes extensively on this parable. And he comments that in the first century, there was this ceremony that would have been enacted in such a situation. That when a son squandered the family inheritance amidst the Gentiles and tried to return home, there was this ceremony called the Kizaza Ceremony. And what the father would do when he sees the son come home is he would take a large clay pot and he would smash it on the ground and exclaim to his son, you are cut off. You are no longer a part of this family. You are no longer a part of this community. You are on your own. Your situation is yours to bear. And so the son knows that this is coming and so he recites the speech of, Dad, Dad, don't worry, don't worry. Just give me a chance. I'll pay the debt. I'll get the money back. We do this all the time. Whether because of of foolishness or or hard-heartedness, we find ourselves wandering into sin. And when that sin leads us to brokenness and pain, we'll find ourselves pleading to God, God, just let me work, I'll get the money back. I'll pay my debts. I'll get it right next time. Just just give me a chance. I remember for me as a, as a young man, this was oddly one of the things that sort of kind of led me on the path to ministry. Was I said, I prayed to God. I said, God, I've followed you half-heartedly. I want to get it right. Go into ministry. I'll be a pastor. I want to do the right thing this time. Now, it didn't take me very long in undergraduate to recognize that that's not what Lutherans believe. (laughs) That we know that there's no amount of working that could get us back. But I found that we have our own version of this. That when we find ourselves in sin, when we've done something wrong, our way of trying to work and get the money back is we just sort of have to feel really guilty and bad about ourselves for about 8 to 10 days. And once you've served that that sort of waiting period of feeling really bad, then because of grace, sort of everything can be good again. And then once everything's good again, just be sure to not feel very good about yourself ever in the future or think too highly of what you can do. And you laugh because you've done this time and time again. 
Whether it's because of what we do or how we feel, the guilt that we bear, what are we trying to do? We're trying to work. We're trying to get the money back. God, I'll get it right. Just give me a chance. And so the son, he wanders back home, reciting his speech, saying, Dad, just be patient. Because he still thinks it's about the money. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice what's missing. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Notice that the son, he wanders home and he expects chastisement. He expects that he's going to have to beg and plead for an opportunity to come home. But what does he get instead? Before he even gets a word out, the father sees him far off and he runs to his son. He embraces him and kisses him. And when the son is embraced by this gracious reception, you notice that his speech changes. That no longer does he think he can work and get the money back. No longer does he see that as a central problem, but he sees here that all along it wasn't about the money. It was about his relationship with his father. And it's when he receives grace for his sin against his father that he recognizes the depth of what he's done. And it's in that moment that he can utter nothing but, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But it's in that same moment when the son receives grace rather than judgment that he also realizes There's going to be no kizaza. There's not going to be a crushed clay pot. There's not going to be chastisement. There's not going to be a cutting off. Because the Father has embraced him and welcomed him home. And in doing this, do you know what the Father is saying? The Father is not simply saying that you can come back, but He's also saying to the Son's wrongdoing, to the Son's foolishness and sin... I will bear that shame. You've brought embarrassment upon the family. I'll bear that. You've brought shame amidst our community. I will bear that. You don't bear that. I'll bear that. So you can come home because what the father wants more than anything else is for his son to come home. Because it was never about the money. It was always about his relationship with his son. And only the father can fix that. 
You see, the problem with our sin is not simply that we break a few rules, that we rack up a debt. But the problem with our sin is that it is a rejection of God. For example, if you think to your small catechism days, how does every single commandment, Numbers 2 through 10, begin? We should fear and love God so that. See, what Martin Luther's hitting, hinting at here is that obedience is not about garnering God's favor. But what obedience is, it is an active trust in God. What we are saying when we seek to obey what God has in mind for us is we're saying, God, I trust that you have what is best for me in mind. God, I trust that you want my good rather than my ill, and so I'm going to trust what you say is best rather than what I think or the world is telling me is best. Because it was never about the money. It has always been about God's desire to welcome his children home, about God's desire to have a relationship with you. That's why he wasn't content to just wait for us to wander home groveling. That's why when Jesus came, he was found where? Eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is God's statement that your sin, your shame, your wickedness and evil, he embraces it. He bears it. He says, you've embarrassed me, you have squandered my creation, you have wasted the life that I've given you, I'll bear that punishment. Because he wants nothing more than for you to come home. The cross is God's statement. That he wants you to come home. That he makes a way for you to come home. And so all of that sin, all of that evil and wickedness, he heaps upon the Son. The perfect son. So his broken, sinful, foolish children get to come home. The story of our faith was never about the money. It's never about the rules or the regulations that we've broken. But the story of our faith at the heart of it has always been God and his love for his children. It has always been about a God who works tirelessly, who neither slumbers nor sleeps because he longs to welcome his children home. It's about the story of God who in Jesus, Paul says, was reconciling the world to himself, who is inviting us through the cross to come home where we belong. It was never about the money. So whether you find yourself in reckless living like the sun, or, or maybe you find yourself caught in phony repentance, or maybe you're just sitting there broken, just trying to figure it out, not sure if there's a way for you to come home. God's response to you is always the same. God's response to the world out there, to the homeless person shooting up heroin in the park, 
to the single mother working in a club on Lake City Way, his response is always the same. Because it was never about the money. Our faith has always been about the God who sees his children and runs to meet them and wants to welcome us home. Amen?